The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Putnam County, Indiana, lies a little bit west of Indianapolis. Its biggest town is Greencastle, home of DePauw University, which was known in the Civil War era as Indiana Asbury University. Putnam County in the Civil War era was also the home of Union men and anti-war copperheads, of women whose lives were upended by the war, and of a very few African Americans, at least before the war. Its citizens were murderers and drunkards, poets and preachers, and everything in between. In short, if you want to know what life was like in the rural north before the war, you could do a lot worse than to study Putnam County. That's what Ball State professor Nicole Etcheson did, and we'll talk about her book, A Generation at War, the Civil War Era in a Northern Community, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the American Athletic Conference, but not speaking for the Athletic Conference or the university or the Greenville city government or really anybody, anyone, <coughs> excuse me, but myself. And I know my guests will do the same as always here on Civil War Talk Radio. I hope everybody enjoyed a good American Thanksgiving for those listening in 
the United States last week. Uh, we had the week off here from the show to stay home and prepare dinner and watch the ECU Pirates beat Tulsa or whoever they were playing last week. Unfortunately, my alma mater, University of Michigan, lost once again to Ohio State and has since fired their head football coach. I have been waiting for several days now for the phone to ring, but it has not, I gather, I'm going to remain a history professor for at least the next few years. Here at ECU, where rumors are more budget cuts are in the offing, I swore off complaining about university politics and administration on the show a few weeks ago, and my resolve is being tested as we find out once again the already empty cupboard is to be raided further by the state. But I'll say no more about that. I will say hello to my students in History 1050. I did not uh, offer extra credit for listening this week in class, so if you actually are listening, you can have extra credit. Uh, bring the secret word to class on Friday. The word is Greencastle. And we'll talk tonight about Greencastle, Indiana in just a few minutes. Uh, first, though, a reminder of what's coming up later on the show, on future shows, which you can find at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where the old shows are posted and new shows are announced. Next week, we'll finish out the winter-fall uh, season with Stephen Cushman, who has a new book from University of North Carolina Press called Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. And we will learn about Lincoln, Whitman, Sherman, Bierce, and Chamberlain. Should be interesting. Then holiday break time, commencement here at ECU and other activities, bowl games, uh, who knows what other uh, events will be taking place. And we'll come back uh, next year, January 2015, on the 14th of the month, with Larry Babbitts, co-editor of From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. On the 21st of January, Mark Christ, uh, Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. Uh, still working on the 28th. We'll see who we're going to get there. Then we've got the much-anticipated show on February 4th on Civil War Beards. Uh, you've heard about it. Uh, you've read about it. We'll find out what's going on with him. And then uh, David Reynolds on February 11th for a Lincoln show. He's edited a new collection of Lincoln's writings. So lots going on. If you're interested in hearing a particular person on Civil War Talk Radio, Please feel free to send me uh, your ideas. Always happy to hear them. Tonight's guest was uh, the fruit of one such uh, excellent suggestion. Sometimes people will write to me and say, how about doing a show on this topic or that topic? And uh, your best bet to have that uh, come to fruition is to uh, suggest a person who's written on the topic you're interested in, and then I will I'll be happy to pursue them. Sometimes I'm not... Uh, sure, if it's an obscure enough topic, I'm not sure who to round up, but it, let me know who you want, and I will certainly look into that possibility. So, uh, find out about that on impedimentsofwar.org or the uh, Facebook page uh, for the same name. You can also buy books. Uh, click on the Amazon uh, button on that website, 
impediments of war and that helps click through some pennies to the website keep it afloat there's also a donation button there which keeps me afloat here in the approaching holiday season to pay for lavish gifts for my minions and uh personal indulgences for myself. It's not a charity. It's not tax deductible. It's just money you're giving me. Although ostensibly, it goes to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, and I do, in fact, buy the occasional book, read it, and talk to you about it. Well, this week, I'm looking at a book which I confess I borrowed from Joyner Library here at East Carolina. Uh, Always prefer to... uh, to buy the book if I can help the author out, but this one was right there on the shelf uh, as I was stalking the stacks the other day and I said, must have it. So uh, the book is A Generation at War, the Civil War Era in a Northern Community, and the author is Nicole Etchison. Dr. Etchison, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm coming to you from the second floor of the Burkhart Building in Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Wonderful. I, I've spent nine years in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana, not too far from you. It seemed like 20, but it was nine. <laughs> um, and no, I, I, I teased. I, I had a good time there at the Lincoln Museum. But I always enjoyed uh, traveling down to Muncie for whatever reason and, and just being on campus. Uh, Fort Wayne doesn't really have a campus, uh, as a day campus for IPFW, but you guys yeah, have a real the- university. The Lincoln Collection um, is still in Indiana, as you may know. It's now divided between the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne and the Indiana State Museum, but we, we still have it, even though the Lincoln uh, corpora- Corporation left, um, and it's one of the jewels of the state. It, it is that. Uh, I'm sorry to learn that uh, Cindy Van Horn retired recently. She was the registrar at the museum when I was there, and she went to the Allen County Public Library with the collection. So mm-hmm. it was really valuable to have her knowledge of the, the institution and, and the collection. Well, uh, I, I don't know her, but I know uh, Jane Gastineau is there yes, now, uh, mm-hmm. and they, they are doing uh, a lot of wonderful things, I think, with the collection. And I was going yes. to point out that uh, your uh, recently fired University of Michigan coach, he was yes. the coach here at Ball State a few years ago. He was Brady Hoke uh, be- between San Diego before San Diego State. Before he uh, left he, us for San Diego, and he right. had an uh, all-winning uh, season and took us to a bowl game. Well, I I think he was a good man. I, I respect him and the things he did for whatever reason. I prefer to blame the athletic director. Um, okay. The coach. I, I know uh, this is the limit of my knowledge of football. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a different question. Well, for, how did you get to Ball State? What, tell, tell me about your, your background a little bit. If, if you don't well, mind. I am from Indiana, and my Ph.D. is from Indiana University. But the a- academic job market being what it is, you have to go where you can get a job. And tell me so about it. I had a one-year uh, temporary position in Ohio. And then I spent four years at the University of South Dakota, and from there went uh, for almost a decade at the University of Texas at El Paso. And then about 10 years ago, the uh, 
Bracken Chair. Um, they have an endowed chair here in the history department at Ball State. Uh, she retired, and they were looking for a replacement. That job uh, came open, and I was able to get it. Yeah, well, that's a happy story, good story in the, the history world when, when the jobs work out like that. Uh, I have the impression that Ball State has something of the relationship to IU that uh, that we have here at ECU to Chapel Hill. We're, we're not the flagship, but we think of ourselves as a major university in our own right. Uh, do, do you have much relationship with, uh, with Bloomington? Well, several of us here in the Ball State History Department are IU PhDs. Um, you're right. Indiana University and Purdue University are the flagship top-tier <laughs> research universities in the state. Purdue, of course, for engineering, IU uh, for humanities um, and other disciplines. And the Ball State considers itself to be the next tier. Um, we pride ourselves on the teacher-scholar model, meaning that we have a research priority, but uh, fine teaching is also one of our priorities. And our, our history is we were founded as uh, the teacher's college, but we are much more than that now. That, that, it, it really echoes uh, East Carolina. We we also see ourselves as third with with Chapel Hill and NC State, and then uh, and we were founded as a teachers' college, but we also envision ourselves as a, a research university, certainly a research department here in history. Uh, let me ask you one other uh, professional question. While before we dive into the Civil War era, I glanced at your website, and you mentioned being involved in History Day, which is a big deal for us at ECU. Uh, Tell, tell me about your experience. Well, when I was a young, untenured professor at South Dakota, the department chairman came down and said that he had seen that I had judged uh, History Day in Indiana while I was a, a grad student, and did I want to be state coordinator? <laughs> well, when you don't have tenure, of course, you say you'd be delighted. To of be course, state that's the right answer. Um, so I did that for, for four years with a lot of help uh, from him. Um, I did that while I was at South Dakota. Then when I went to El Paso, I made the mistake of writing to the state coordinator um, in Austin saying, I'm out here in El Paso, and if you have History Day here, I'd be happy to contribute. And he immediately called me up and said, we've never had History Day in El Paso, and can you be the regional coordinator? And my initial reaction was, sure, regional coordinator's got to be easier than being state coordinator. And then I realized that the population of El Paso is the same as the population of the state of South Dakota. Um, but after I left El Paso, uh, my colleague at UTEP, Charles Martin, took over as regional coordinator, and he has done fantastic things with the program and expanded it well beyond what, what I had done. Well, it's a great program, and you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, it's basically science fair only for history. Uh, and, and students exhibit both physical exhibits and now a lot of website and digital exhibits as well. And it strikes me as a good way for academic historians to stay in touch with their communities and, and give something back and engage with them. And it, so I was just very pleased to uh, see that, that that was something that you had done 
because there are a lot of universities that don't participate and that don't uh, uh, that, that just let it languish, and that, that shouldn't happen. Oh yes, it's a wonderful program, and and one of the things I I liked about it was that the students have to do research, no matter what category they choose to do. They all do research. They all do some writing. So they have to write a process paper. Mm-hmm. But they, then they can demonstrate what they know in whatever they're good at, performance, um, paper, they can write a paper, they can do a project. So there's a variety of different ways in which they can express the history they've learned. And I'll just add, since coming to uh, Muncie, um, then my experience was as the parent of a History Day competitor. Ah. And in seventh grade, my son won the special award at Indiana History Day uh, for the best paper on Abraham Lincoln. Ah, well, that, that warms my heart. Uh, uh, glad to hear uh, that that. Indiana still gives awards for for papers on Lincoln. Indiana is somewhat the forgotten state in the Lincoln Trail between Kentucky and Illinois sometimes. Well, this was a special award sponsored by the Benjamin Harrison House in Indianapolis. Hmm. That's a place, I don't know that I ever made it there. I'm trying to recall if I visited that. Well, let let us move to the Civil War era um, and... When I started reading this book, I noticed you you open with an axe murder, and that yes. seems to me just just good sense. That's uh, that gets your reader going. Um, why an axe murder to start the story? Well, I didn't plan on starting with an axe murder, but I uh, had this grisly murder from the 1850s, in uh, which um, a newlywed uh, murders his young bride, and. I started thinking about how I was going to open the book, and it did seem like a a gripping way to draw people into the story. But also, as I thought about it, I saw all kinds of nuances in the way uh, people talked about the murder and the way it was represented. Um, It was a lot about gender and the role of a husband and the role of a wife and and the conflict uh, that emerged almost immediately um, in this marriage. And also, it, it played into the, the politics of the 1850s because local Whig Republicans immediately said, well, that family, um, they drink, they're Democrats. You know, this is the kind of behavior you expect from people of that political type. So it had nuances beyond just... Uh, what seemed to be a very troubled young man who didn't adjust to marriage and murdered his wife brutally. I'm going to step in for a minute. We're going to take a short break, come back, find out more about Putnam County in Indiana, axe murderers and all. We're talking with Nicole Etchison, author of A Generation at War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Nicole Atchison, author of A Generation at War, the Civil War Era in a Northern Community. The community in question, uh, the town of Greencastle and the uh, county of Putnam County, Indiana, just a little bit west of Indianapolis. Uh, Nicole, how did you uh, decide that this was uh, an appropriate community to study to try to get a sense of what the Civil War era was like? Well, when I was doing my dissertation at IU, I came across a speech uh, that Daniel Voorhees gave in the winter of 1860. And Voorhees was the newly elected congressman from the 7th District of Indiana, which included Putnam County. And he gave this speech in Greencastle. And it's a very famous speech in Indiana history. He says that we in Indiana will uh, not uh, send one dollar, one man to fight against our brothers in the South. And this is an expression that many Hoosiers had come originally, or their parents had come from Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, and it was an expression of solidarity with the South. And, and Voorhees gave this speech after South Carolina had seceded. But then as I'm reading the newspapers uh, in April of 1861, after the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, m- all these men, young men, turn out in Putnam County to volunteer to fight against their brothers in the South. And I knew that Putnam County was uh, an area that had a lot of copperhead, anti-war sentiment, but also there was obviously this very strong union sentiment, and I thought that I I wanted to come back to that someday, and someday turned out to be 10 or 15 years later, and look at Putnam County 
as a microcosm of the war in the North. And then also, as I say, admit in the, the introduction, uh, my father's family, the Etchisons, are from Putnam County. And I didn't set out to do a family history, and there's only glancing mention of one ancestor in the book, but I thought that would be interesting to explore the sort of ancestral terrain. It, it, it doesn't certainly come off as a, a, a family history. It, it's not uh, genealogical. No. Uh, it, it's very much a, uh, uh, a history, as you described, a micro-history of a single community. When I started reading, I was a little uh, concerned. It reminded me in, in my undergraduate days at Michigan, uh, I took a course from uh, Shaw Livermore, who had written about a Wisconsin frontier community, uh, Trempolo County, mm-hmm. and we, we spent a whole semester studying this one county, and I, <laughs> I just picked that course because I thought, this looks like the most boring thing imaginable, and if I can withstand this, I am a historian. <laughs> well, history managed- should not be boring. That's why I began with the axe murder, to try and draw the reader in. And it worked. I mean, you, you'd go from there to talk about the conflicts in the county, as you, we ended the first segment talking about the political hay that both sides make out of this murder, that mm-hmm. uh, this is an example of, you know, a, a Democratic lowlife uh, person, and then, the, you know, Democrats have their own accusations for Whigs and Republicans. Uh, what, what are the issues that divide people in the decade before the war? Well, I wanted, one of... Uh the things I wanted to do in the book, so many of the home front studies are 1861 to 1865, and I thought the only way to really understand change over time and get at this question of how does the war change the North was to widen out the chronological perspective. So I looked at 1850 to 1880 at the same time that I was narrowing in on one community, And I found that there were certain issues that remained constant over time. And I was surprised at how much energy went into the temperance movement. Before the war, it abates somewhat during the war because they've got other problems, but then after the war, it comes back immediately, and it's a huge issue. But, of course, during uh, the 1850s, you have the emergence of these sectional Issues and Indiana is, as were many Midwest, Midwestern states, is a black law state. It has legal provisions discriminating against free blacks and prohibiting free blacks from even moving into the state. All of that is challenged by the Civil War and essentially undone by the Civil War. So the changes in race relations, there there are changes in other political issues, there are changes in gender relations, but the changes in race relations are, I think, the major ones that occur because of the war. What struck me about that is a point that that I find myself emphasizing with students. The difference between North and South is not a simple... North, free, good, South, slave, bad uh, dichotomy. And many Northerners who are anti-slavery are not necessarily pro-slave. It, it, you find that pretty much all the white people in Putnam County are, are, are biased against African Americans, are, are, are anti-slave. 
whether they're anti-slavery or not. Yes, although I'll qualify that somewhat. There's incredible Mm -hmm. racist sentiment, and I I think you're absolutely right that slavery is simply one manifestation of United States racism. Black laws such as Indiana had and other states had is another manifestation. So it is not north good, south bad. Mm -hmm. The, The whole country has these racial issues. But it was also interesting, and and one of the most uh, fascinating chapters to work on was an early chapter about African Americans in the county in the pre-war period, which, as you said in your introduction to the program, there aren't very many. And most of the work that we have on the black community in the pre-Civil War period is looking at places like Boston where you have substantial number of blacks and they can form churches and they can form organizations. Well, you don't have. You have only a handful of African Americans in Putnam County. But what's interesting is many of them tend to have strong, what I see as patron-client relationships with white families that owned them in Maryland or Kentucky. And in in one case, the case of the Peters family, who are a rare case of African Americans who choose to go to Liberia in the 1850s, and that's rare not just for Indiana, but for the entire North for free blacks to go to Liberia. It seems to be the case that their patron wanted them out of the hmm. county. But there's another family, the Townsend family, black family, um, who seem, who, who maintained ties to the white Townsends into the post-war period and who were fixtures of the local community and whose children seem to have gone to school with white children in the county. So I think your basic point is right. The North is racist, but there's some very interesting, when you look closely at what's happening on the ground, there's some very interesting interrelationships. Well, and it's not just that, that most white Northerners are racist, but some of them are virulently anti-slavery, but even they will then insist it's not because they support black equality. Uh, Absolutely. They, they have many, why, why else do they oppose, ra- or oppose slavery then if it's not on behalf of the slaves? Well, A.C. Stevenson, who is the patron of uh, the Peters family and who helped to create Indiana's black laws and who says in the Constitutional Convention of 1850-1851 that writes Indiana's state constitution, he, he says we have to make Indiana a miserable place so that blacks will understand it's not their home and they will go to Liberia. Um, and Stevenson seemed to be very troubled in his convention comments by racial intermingling. Um, he mentions the complexion of slaves. So that seemed to bother him. Um, and there are, and Stevenson was anti slavery. He, he's a fixture of the Whig Party and then later of the Republican Party. Um, there are a lot of white Hoosiers who oppose slavery as a, a moral evil and as at odds with the 
principles of American liberty and the Declaration of Independence, but they don't believe that African Americans are equal, and they don't believe that blacks and whites can live together um, on any terms of equality, and they don't want oftentimes to compete with blacks in the labor market. So the... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to add, but one of the stories that made me think there had been substantial change is that A.C. Stevenson, by the 1870s, is one of uh, the county's Republicans who are recruiting blacks from North Carolina to come and settle in the county. And so here's a man who helped craft the provisions that said African Americans could not migrate into Indiana in the 1850s and who wanted to colonize the black population in Liberia. And he's turning around, as do other um, white Republicans in the county, and saying in the 1870s, well, American citizens have a right to move wherever they want to. And if they want to come to Indiana, we have jobs for them, and uh, they're great laborers. That is certainly the deepest change uh, that the war seems to bring. When the war starts, uh, as you point out, people like like Voorhees, who are definitely not going to support the war effort, uh, suddenly change their tune. The war's begun. He says, I'm not going to support the war. I'm not going to support starting the war effort. But now that it's on, I'm I'm all in. Well, Uh, no, actually, Voorhees is a... um, He's a, a copperhead. He's a leading peace Democrat, and there is a substantial contingent in the county of the Democrats split. Some of them become war Democrats, and they ally with the Republicans and even maybe join the Republican Party and support the war effort. But there are others who become, um, who remain adamantly opposed to the war. They think that the Republicans have deliberately brought on the war for the purpose of carrying out abolition, and the Emancipation Proclamation just proves that they were right, that the Republicans wanted this war and provoked the South into it. Um, And there there are mobbings of uh, draft enrollment officers. There are threats. in Putnam County against draft enrollment officers and, and in the general uh, region of, of western central Indiana. What, what level of violence actually takes place between Copperheads and, and war supporters? Um, not as much as the heated rhetoric. People, no one um, is killed in the county, but people are threatened and people are shot at. Draft enrollment officers are shot at. Um, there's one case in 1863 where uh, the draft enrollment um, officer, one, one of them in the townships, has his, his house uh, mobbed at night, and um, James Sill is the, the draft officer, and his wife and daughter sort of rescue him. His wife runs out the back with the enrollment papers uh, stuffed in her petticoats, um, and the mob stops her, but they don't um, search her adequately. Uh, and, and so 
he manages to keep the papers, and meanwhile, his daughter is defending him from the mob. Um, at the she refuses to leave his side. Um, so there's a lot of that. That's the sort of biggest incident. Um, but it does seem to be the case that the Copperheads, the Peace Democrats, are drilling uh, militarily. Um, and they are worried. There's a lot of talk about fear that the Republicans will deprive them of, a, of their Second Amendment rights to uh, bear guns. So there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of tension. I mean, one of the challenges in, in Civil War uh, history writing is to, to figure out the depth of the, the threat of, of uh, Copperhead organizations like the Sons of Liberty or Knights of the Golden Circle, uh, you know, Jennifer Weber, you you cited, has written about this. Uh, where do you fall on that? Uh, on the spectrum, from the Copperheads are a figment of Republican imagination, or not Copperheads, but the, the conspiracies to actually overthrow state governments are, are, are at the one end are they figments of Republican political imagination? At the other end, are they serious threats that could easily have happened? I don't think they're figments of the Republican imagination. As you've indicated, it's terribly hard to know because the Copperheads didn't leave any records, which if they were involved in a treasonous conspiracy, of course, they would <laughs> Makes be. sense. <laughs> and Jennifer Weber talks about that in her book and, and even suggests that maybe descendants realizing that this stuff was toxic didn't preserve you know, incriminating um, papers. Uh, my friend, uh, Steve Town, who's archivist at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, he really believes that there, there was a threat. So I think I fall sort of in the middle of the spectrum. They, they were up to no good. I tend to think that much of what the Copperheads were up to was draft resistance, their leaders may have been plotting a conspiracy, and in 1864, the governor of Indiana aborts an alleged conspiracy to liberate Confederate prisoners at a prisoner war camp in Indianapolis, um, and, that, and there's been much debate. Was there really such a plan? I tend to believe that the Sons of Liberty, the, the top leadership may have had such a plan, but the rank and file, I believe, is joining this organization and drilling militarily and spewing fire and brimstone in anger against the draft, which they believe to be a violation of their civil liberties. It is the first draft in United States history. Um, and also, they disagree with the war. The war is incredibly bloody, and they do not want to be conscripted to die in this abolitionist war. So, well, as you say, if it's a secret conspiracy, the, the, the people involved had a vested interest in keeping it secret, and we still don't have a, an ironclad answer to that. Well, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and uh, talk more about life in Putnam County during and after the Civil War. Our guest today is Nicole Etcherson. Her book, A Generation at War, The Civil War Era in a Northern Community. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Nicole Etcherson, author of A Generation at War, The Civil War Era in a Northern Community. That community is Putnam County, Indiana, just west of Indianapolis, a rural community. We talked about its uh, division before the war to Whigs, later Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other, uh, some of the issues that divided them, and uh, especially during the war, the anti-war copperheads and the uh, th- threat they posed, the steps they took to resist the draft. Uh, what about the Union men of Putnam County? Was there were there regiments raised specifically in the county? Oh yes, the twenty seventh uh, Indiana was the main Putnam County regiment. All although uh, men uh, from the county served in in other Indiana regiments, and the twenty seventh. Saw service uh, in the Eastern Campaign mainly. They um, uh, were in uh, Battle of Antietam, in particular um, at Chancellorsville. Uh, then there was one young man, uh, the Townsend family, as I said, one of the principal black families um, in the county. Their oldest son, Robert, um, enlisted in the 28th United States uh, Colored Troops, which was the Indiana's black regiment, and he did not actually see combat service. He became sick while still in camp in Indianapolis and went home, died at home shortly after the end of the war, but the 28th went on uh, and was in the Petersburg campaign and in the Battle of, of the Crater 
and later at the end of the war uh, served out their remaining year or so of service in Texas before mustering out. And there were so, also uh, men from Putnam County uh, who fought in Tennessee and uh, who were in uh, campaigns uh, in Georgia, in Sherman's campaigns uh, around Atlanta. So the, the county is certainly divided in that sense. They do send men to the war. One of the things one typically reads in in home front analysis is that wartime, of course, changes gender roles. Men are gone. Women have to do different things. Uh, and in, in some cases, you read that this is an opportunity for women to exercise independence and assume uh, power and authority and opportunity they didn't have before. I got a different sense uh, about the women of Putnam County responding to the war. How, how do you see it? Yes. What I found is that uh, in those cases where the women assumed independent roles, it was not that they wanted to. They very much wanted the men to stay home or to come home and... They wanted to have uh, traditional roles. Uh, One of the young wives that I talk about, Alice Chapin, her phrase was that she wanted her own corner, which is the domestic sphere, very much the 19th century rhetoric of separate spheres, that woman is supposed to stay in the home. Putnam County did not have any kind of a woman's rights movement, and Indiana was not a strong woman's rights state, you do see in the county some older women who become involved with the Sanitary Commission and aid to the soldiers, and some of this is an extension of work that they were already doing in their churches. The Presbyterian Ladies' Aid Society becomes the Sanitary Aid uh, Society, and instead of doing charitable work, they are putting together care packages for the soldiers. But a lot of the young wives whose husbands go away uh, to war are, are, they may send individual care packages to their husband, but they are not using this as an opportunity to expand woman's sphere. So they, they are eager, they're content to stay home and eager for the men to return. I, mean, I found that interesting because I wouldn't say it contradicts what is generally written, but it does uh, you know, show that, that historical actors don't always conform to contemporary expectations. Uh, what about after the war? Uh, you, you divide the book roughly into thirds uh, mm-hmm. before, during, and after the war, uh, which gives us this long view. And you've mentioned that, that race is, is perhaps the biggest change, but I noticed something stayed the same. For example, you have... Uh, you know, political conflict remains uh, high, partisanship remains high, and uh, right after the war we get another good stabbing murder, uh, this time a <laughs> Democratic politician. Uh, how, how does that fit into our story? Well, uh, I'll, I'll start first with the change in gender roles, as I mentioned Alice Chapin. Mm-hmm. In the 1850s, the ladies of Greencastle give a temperance supper, and there's a controversy, the paper does not print their names, even though some of them gave speeches, but it does print the names of men who spoke, including A.C. Stevenson. And apparently some of the women were unhappy that they were not mentioned by name, and the the newspaper editor 
thought that that was unseemly of them to accept uh, to expect public recognition. Then, after the war, when the temperance movement kicks up again, there's something called uh, the Woman's Crusade. It starts in Ohio and spreads to Indiana, and Alice Chapin is very much involved in it. And this, she not only gets her name in the paper, but this involves uh, women holding public meetings and actually going to the saloons and sitting in them to shame the men into not drinking. And, and so Alice Chapin just takes a very public role, and the newspapers are acknowledging women by name and printing their speeches, but it's still seen, temperance work is still seen as an acceptable extension of woman's sphere. Women are more moral, so it's okay for them. Uh, by the 1870s, it's stretched enough that it's okay for them to actually have their names recognized as they're doing this and to go to a, a male place like the saloon. But it's not an assertion that as women we are individuals and they're certainly not asking for political rights. Um, the stabbing murder you mentioned is the death, I think you're referring to the death of Solomon Akers? Yes. Uh, Solomon Akers is a really interesting character. He is a diehard Democrat, all during the 1850s when other Democrats are falling away from the party because they don't like Kansas, Nebraska, or um, they don't like uh, the Lecompton Constitution, another Kansas-related controversy, or the war breaks out with the South and they break with the Democrats. Solomon Akers stays a faithful Democrat and he's a copperhead Democrat all through the war. But there's vicious infighting within the local Democratic Party uh, between Akers and other powers in the Putnam County Democratic Party. Um, and by uh, the post-war period, um, Akers is a controversial enough figure, he, he stabbed at a Democratic Party rally, and he had defied the local party because he, he thought they were, uh, they had railroaded through candidates um, that he didn't like, and he, he was vowing to take a stand against his own party. Um, and, and then he dies at this rally and there is no indication, I, I could find no records of who the killer was. Um, and the Republicans certainly intimate that fellow Democrats got rid of him uh, because he, he was threatening division in the party. He's a fascinating, he's a fascinating character. Absolutely. We're running close to the end. I, I don't want to leave without getting back to really a main theme of the book, which is the change uh, in in racial attitudes in the county after the war, uh, what what's the, the the short version? How how did they change and why? Well, why they changed, I think, has to do with the evolution of Republican anti-slavery politics during the war, and Civil War historians know very well how Lincoln very carefully moves uh, from a war to save the Union to the Emancipation Proclamation, which is somewhat partial in its application to the 13th Amendment, 
um, and and does a lot of that movement by arguing for the practical necessities. And this is an argument that whites and Republicans in Putnam County are prepared to accept, that in order to win the war, we have to have emancipation, that in order to keep the traitors from regaining political power in the South, we have to have black suffrage. Um, So... The reasons for Indiana's accepting these changes and for Putnam Countyans accepting these changes, I think, are very practically based. This is how we defeat the South, and this is how we keep the rebels from coming back to power. But the bottom line is an acceptance of black rights. And I should add that even though there aren't very many African Americans in the county, they are moving to push for their rights. Robert Townsend goes off to fight in this war. After the war is over with, his relatives, um, and as well as new migrants, because the black population does increase once slaves are free and they can move about the country, by the 1870s, African Americans in the county are participating in the Republican Party politics. They are participating in the Union Veterans Organization. Um, they are pressing court cases, which they wouldn't have been able to do before the Civil War. They are applying for pensions. They are forming uh, a black community with its own church. So there's this dynamic of whites accepting black rights as a practical necessity and blacks insisting upon their rights. So in with just a, a minute to go, let me ask, what surprised you most in the research for this book? Um, uh, there were a lot of surprises. I think uh, one surprise was how much you could find out about ordinary people in the past. And I felt that it was a, an obligation on me. Abraham Lincoln will have many, 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 many historians. He has many biographers. Many historians have written about him. I may be the only person who ever writes about Robert Townsend or Alice Chapin or James Sills. Um, so I felt a special obligation to get their story right and to convey it uh, to the public in a, a moving way, in a way that did justice to those lives of 150 years ago. Well, I, th- I think it's fair to say uh, that there, you succeeded in that. It really is a, a fascinating book, and it does. That uh, I, I was kidding a little bit about the the book I read as an undergraduate, and the course <laughs> I took, but not kidding that much. It really didn't didn't grab me. The professor was fascinated with this particular county, but never got those of us in the class all to to get aboard. Here, on the other hand, uh, you know, Putnam County is a very real place, and these characters you introduce us to are very uh, real people. And it does help explain, uh, to a large extent, the kinds of changes that go on on the home front in the north. As you pointed out in the introduction, we have lots of uh, studies like this of southern communities, but, but not many of the north. So this really uh, fills an important niche. Uh, 
final question, do you have any other projects going on at this point? Well, I'm working now on a project about suffrage in the post-Civil War era. I got interested in how the former Confederates uh, got voting rights back so quickly and what the dynamics were, and that's taken me into uh, relations between the issue of former Confederate suffrage and black and woman suffrage, which we know are ongoing debates at the time and we know were interrelated. Well, that sounds uh, equally fascinating and worth exploring, but uh, in the meantime, Listeners, you will want to take a look at A Generation at War, the Civil War era in a northern community, and find out uh, what went down in Putnam County. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.